1 Peter 1.13-2.3, a call to be holy. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through whom, him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to have you all here this morning. If you haven't met me yet, my name's Ken. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. Uh, just a couple of quick reminders as we begin. Um, hopefully there's a phone number that'll come up soon. Um, the podcast has kicked off again as we're in a new series. Um, we run a podcast that is uh, made available during the week. You can interact with that if there's questions that come out of the sermon, if there's issues that are raised that you'd like us to reflect on further, then you can send a text into the text line uh, and Grace and the people who are preaching uh, incorporate that together and, and put that into a podcast so that we continue to think about the Word of God and what He's saying to us during the week as well. Um, some other people have requested uh, to do baptism this year, uh, and if that's something that you haven't done, that's something that you've been thinking about, or would just like to go along to the classes to 
maybe check out if that's something that's appropriate for you to be doing. Um, then we'll be starting baptismal classes in the next couple of weeks. And so if that's something that's of interest to you, then just come and speak to me afterwards. Now, today we're continuing our series, Glorious Exiles. Last week, we were introduced to the introduction of Peter's letter. And as the title of this series attempts to capture, two seemingly incompatible truths are presented as both true. Those he is writing to are at the same time both privileged and persecuted. They're rejoicing and they're grieving. Their future is glorious. Their present is suffering. It seems like it should be just one or the other. Glory and exile don't normally fit together. You don't think of a displaced person. Oh, well, look at how glorious they are. So how can these two seemingly incompatible things both be true? Well, this morning we're going to think further about how these contrasting truths are brought together by Peter. So I invite you to pray with me, asking God to help us as we think about this. So let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the privilege we've got uh, to meet together in this way, to have the regular opportunity to think about your word, uh, what you're revealing to us about yourself, what you're revealing to us about us, uh, what you're revealing about our future. And so we pray this morning as we think about these things that you would enable us uh, to not only understand them, but respond to them in a way that's appropriate and giving glory to Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. We all need to be in the car in two minutes. Otherwise, we're going to be late. So, so put your shoes on. Hurry up. Same household, a different occasion. Your exams are next week. You need to stop tidying the desk and actually do some study. Now, whether it's the parental plea to get ready to go out or the pep talk pushing for study plans to become study reality, the common theme of these two statements is that because of what's coming in the future, appropriate action in the present is demanded. Lack of awareness or ignorance of the future would mean that we wouldn't know what's best to do right now. Time would be wasted on things that are less urgent, less important. But a clear awareness of what is coming in the future clarifies what the right response is and supplies the motivation to act now. But the opposite can also be true. For example, the daydreaming procrastinator or the person paralysed by the, the fear of making a mistake, unsure of what the future holds. Both of these people think about the future a great deal. But instead of it motivating action, their focus on the future results in further thinking about what might or might not be. It leads to inaction. Now, some have criticised the Christian focus on the future along these lines. For example, John Lennon's famous song, Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. Imagine all the people living life in peace. So according to Lennon, life would be better if we could get rid of this unhelpful speculation about what comes after death. Just ignore the future and be nice to each other now. 
along similar lines. Others have said that this type of thinking is just pie in the sky till you die. Joe Hill, a labour activist in, in the US, originally penned this line as a parody of the very famous hymn in the sweet by and by. His point was that the Christian faith, with its focus on the afterlife, resulted in a lack of practical assistance for the needy people now. Along the same lines, Johnny Cash sang, don't be so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good. The songs and similar sentiment could be multiplied. But are they right? Should we just get on with doing, with living in the now? Or can a focus on the future be of benefit to our present? How should a Christian's future hope change the way that we live now in the present? Well, verse 13 begins to answer that question by strongly connecting what is going to be said in the coming verses with what was said in last week's passage. The thinking and the actions that are expected in verse 13 and onwards are all based upon the foundational truths expressed, found in chapters 1, verses 1 to 12. And so we mustn't lose sight of either truth symbolised in our beautiful tent. We have been born again into a living hope. We are privileged, glorious, spectacular, just like the lights. And we're also persecuted, suffering, going through the fire. Both are true. So don't only think of the nice things that are promised, the, the living hope, the guaranteed future, the joy, the glory. But also don't get stuck bemoaning the fact that there are difficulties and persecution in this life as if those were to be our permanent experience. So should we spend a similar amount of time thinking about both aspects of our lives? Well, no, according to Peter, according to Peter we're to prioritise the future, we're to focus on it. In the NIV it says, with minds that are alert and fully sober. Or in the older translation, prepare your minds for action. In the original language, Peter uses the image of, of lifting up your cloak up out of the way so that you're able to run unhindered. His meaning is be aware of both of these truths and by doing so, be ready to act. Verse 13, by setting your hope fully on the grace that will be yours. Now, I think normally when we think of grace, we think of how God treated us in accepting us back into relationship with him. If you are a Christian, you received grace at that moment when you accepted him as a substitute in your place. To receive grace is to have our, our sin forgiven, even though we didn't deserve it to be. But Peter's emphasis here is a little bit different. His instruction is to focus on the grace we will receive in the future when Christ is revealed. Changes are already taking place in us now, like a building going up or a child growing taller. Progress can already be seen in the present. But it is the final state, when the building is finished or the child has stopped growing, that reveals the full extent of the change. Peter wants us to have our focus on the finish line, the completed project, the picture on the front of the puzzle box. 
Think of what you are becoming, what you will be. It is then, when Jesus is revealed, that the outcome of grace will be seen most clearly, that the the full extent of what he's graciously done in us and for us will be known and seen clearly. Now, this might all sound like where, just to think about it, where to be passive, to just think about what is to come. But in verse 14, Peter makes it clear that the purpose of focusing on that final outcome is so that we might know how to act now. Having the right focus on the end means that right now in the present, we are obedient children. Unlike the procrastinator or the person paralysed by future unknowns, knowing what the end looks like informs our choices in the present. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I don't know how many of you went, they held the Illawarra Festival of Wood. Various artists had turned wood into a range of stunning creations. I can only guess how many hours were spent on some of the detailed work. But while we were there, right before our eyes, one artist used a chainsaw to turn a log into the head of a dragon. Now, not being an artist, I can only assume that when he began his work, he could already see in his mind what he wanted the end product to be. And that end goal determined which bits of the log were cut off and which bits stayed. Likewise, we have to choose which bits of our lives stay and which bits must go based upon what we will be like in the end. We have a choice. As we did in the past, when we were ignorant, we can simply continue to follow our passions. In the past, we determined how we would live or went along with whatever felt best. The alternative, verse 15 instructs, is that our lives should imitate the holy God. Peter quotes Leviticus to say that this is how God's people have always been expected to live. We are to pattern ourselves and how we live on what God is like. Not holy, as some misunderstand it to mean, as I consider myself better than you. No, holy as in pure, untainted, living the way that God created us to live. The grace that we will receive when Jesus is revealed is not the get-out-of-jail-free card that allows us to continue sinning in this life and have it all wiped out at the end. No, grace is what enables us to live holy lives right now. Now, Peter doesn't yet describe the specifics of what living a holy life is. Rather, he tells us, verse 15, be holy in all that you do. No part of our life should remain unaffected by our hope. It's easy to imagine that in the face of suffering, that it would have been natural to attempt to avoid being noticed by those around them. All of us have experienced it's much easier to stay quiet rather than to say or do things which demonstrate that we are different. And yet part of the very definition of holiness is that we are distinct from others. We're noticeably different. Because we are glorious exiles, the expectation is that we won't seek to blend in like a chameleon. We won't try to go under the radar 
in order to stay safe. No, we will intentionally stick out and be noticed. We'll make it clear that we live according to a different standard. This behaviour, this holiness, defiantly rebels against our society's insistence that religion must remain a private matter. Most are happy if we keep our thoughts to ourselves. But God expects us to live out our holiness for all to see in every aspect of our life. In verses 17 to 21, two further motivations for holy living are offered. In verse 17, God our Father is described as an impartial judge. All that we do now, our actions in the present, is someday in the future going to be evaluated by our all-seeing Father. Now, this is not intended as a threat, as if Peter was saying something like, oh, you'd better be good, otherwise God's not going to let you into heaven. No, God's future judgment clarifies that he has redeemed us for a purpose to which he holds us accountable. While redemption, verse 18, has become Christian jargon, its origin is in the world of business. To secure a loan, something must be offered to guarantee that we'll pay back that loan, whether that's at cash converters or the loan on your house. The payment made to take ownership redeems the object, it buys it back. In our case, what has been bought back, what's redeemed, is our very lives. Verses 18 and 19 assert the vastly superior value of that which redeemed us, far more precious than what is normally considered to be most valuable. Jesus' blood is giving up his life, not mere gold or silver, paid the price for our lives. The implication is that our lives must match the value of that which paid for them and its new purpose. We haven't been redeemed to continue living like we're unredeemed. Now, most of you have seen my little yellow car. My first car was a Ford Laser, just like this one. I bought it off my grandparents who had owned it from you. And I'm sure at first, the new car cleanness was maintained and cherished. But by the time that I owned it, it didn't look like this. It was far from you. It had been used on the family cattle farm. It had been used to carry all sorts of things, left with its windows down in dusty paddocks. And as a result, it smelt terrible inside and it was faded on the outside, scratched and dinged. I remember one night just after we'd bought it, uh, we took some of the youth group out for an activity and as we drove down the highway, they all had their heads out the window because it smelt so bad inside. <laughs> so after I became the new owner, I had to lift up the carpets to vacuum the red dust out from underneath, I had to wash the stains off the seats, deodorise. And after I cleaned it up, it was never used to carry cattle feed again or shift dirty farm tools. Those things were a part of its past life. What was and wasn't done now was determined by the new purpose that I had bought it for. And how much more should our lives be? Bought not with money, but with the priceless blood of Jesus. Why would we live as if nothing has changed? Our old lives, verse 18, were empty, dirty, 
the outcome of blindly submitting to our desires, the life passed on to us from our forefathers. But now we've been given a new, holy life from God our Father, redeemed by him for the highest price imaginable. It doesn't make sense for such a high price to have been paid and then not live in line with the intentions of our Redeemer. God has redeemed us so that we won't remain in the mess of our old lives, but be restored, better even than our original state. We are God's restoration project. And yet, unlike my car, we're not passive in this restoration. We have a responsibility to live in a way that recognises what God is making us into. We make choices each and every day to live like what we were or to live in line with what we are becoming. Live like what we were or live in line with what we're becoming. Verses 22 to 25 finally begin to develop what this looks like in practice. Obedience, holiness, reverent fear of God. Don't just describe our relationship between us and God. How those things are observed in practice is our treatment of our fellow Christians. And Peter is confident that his readers have already begun to do the right thing. Verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves so that you have sincere love for each other. This is a change that has already taken place in the Christians. The love that we already have is here explicitly described as sincere or genuine. And yet the further instruction is to do so deeply from the heart. This is not Peter now questioning the authenticity of their existing love, but rather it's his encouragement to keep working at making this love more and more characteristic of how we interact. Don't be satisfied with the beginner's level love. Keep working on it, develop it, expand it, deepen it. This picks up Jesus' own teaching that by our love for one another, we'll be known as his disciples. What we are doing, sorry, what are we doing that shows that we love our fellow Christians? Is it, is it clear from our interactions, from how we talk with one another? Are we quick to encourage or to criticise? Do we lend a hand even when we're not asked to explicitly? Do we ask others how they are and then give them the time so that they can answer honestly, knowing that they'll be listened to compassionately? There's so many ways that we can show love. One of the things that we'll emphasise throughout this series, and John's already mentioned, is our need to pray for others who are being persecuted for their faith. The recent survey we all did showed that this is not something that many of us at WBC prioritise, but it is a great way to demonstrate, to live out love. Peter wants his readers to be continually developing, finding new creative ways to show love for one another. And as he starts getting into the practical, Peter doesn't just tell us what to do, but he continues to explain the motivation that will fuel this ongoing push to love more and more. The permanence, the eternal nature of which we have been born again into is emphasised. 
God's word is changing us so that our new life now is a foretaste of the way that we are going to be forever. So we work on and develop what we're going to be like rather than just continuing on with how we were. Finally, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, this holy living is spoken of from yet another angle. Get rid of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. And the connection between these things seems to be that they all break relationship. They treat others poorly in the misguided notion that this will make us feel better about ourselves. But love for God is displayed in love for others. And so this way of interacting that used to characterise us must be removed. Yet it's not as simple as a one-time swap or replacing one action with another. This is going to be an ongoing transformation that, that progressively changes us to our core. Back in chapter 1, verse 14, it was giving in to desires that led us into our empty way of living, the life that we needed to be redeemed from. But now, Peter instructs us that we are to develop a desire for that which brings life. To empower this change, we must learn to crave pure spiritual milk. So what is pure spiritual milk? Well, in 1 Corinthians and Hebrews, the metaphor of milk refers to God's word, which likewise in 1 Peter has specifically been the focus since verse 23. And so the word of God is at least a part of the meaning. But unlike Corinthians and Hebrews, which compare milk as the initial teachings and meat as the teaching for more mature Christians, In Peter, milk seems to be a more general reference to God himself. As a baby instinctively knows that it's dependent upon its mother's milk, so we need to be aware that the only thing that will facilitate spiritual growth in our lives is having God in our life. As a baby would get fairly cranky and severely malnourished if it had a drink once a week on a Sunday morning, So this also is an encouragement for us to have an ongoing relationship with God. Now, that could be in any number of ways. It may be coming to church on Sunday. Maybe your daily reading and prayerful reflection. It may be singing. Maybe listening to a podcast or praying through a passage. It may be meeting up with someone else or in your home group to reflect together on God's word. It might be a word of thanks offered to God when you see a beautiful beach or a sunrise, acknowledging that this is a gift from your heavenly Father. The point is that God and his word, rather than the things of this world, lead to the new life that we should be desiring, that we're creating a desire for. Chapter 2, verse 3 says that the Christians that Peter was writing to already knew this relationship from experience. And yet they still needed to be reminded to not slip back into old patterns of living, but rather set their minds on what God promised they were to receive. Only as they thought of what they were to become would they know what they needed to prioritise now. Which means that the original criticism that someone is too heavenly minded to be of earthly use is shown to terribly miss the mark. 
C.S. Lewis commented in his book, Mere Christianity, that if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Now, if you read Christian biographies, people who've done great things for God, you'll know that the focus, their focus on the future frequently was the motivation for what they did, whether it's great preachers or missionaries or those that fought to end slavery. Others' goals were to improve people's health, working or educational conditions. And it was their awareness of eternity that motivated them to act now, to bring about change in the present. We can learn from their positive example. But do we also need to hear Lewis's criticism? His analysis was written some time ago, and yet I still think it accurately describes the trap that we can commonly fall into. Is it possible that we've gotten too caught up with the now? Is it only at funerals or when we read a passage explicitly about the future that we do stop to reflect on the hope that we have? Do we have confident knowledge of how things are going to end that actually drives the choices that we make today? Or do we make decisions based upon the same thinking as those around us that don't know or follow God? Does the perfection that will be ours when Jesus is revealed lead us to make choices now to rid ourselves of sin and develop love for God and for one another? Or do we put up with sin? Well, because that's just who we are. How should a Christian's future hope change the way that we live in the present? Well, having reflected on these verses, we've seen that like the parents' plea to act now because of what's about to happen, Peter likewise wants us to act now in light of what the future holds. Because of what's coming in the future, appropriate action in the present is demanded. Lack of awareness or ignorance of the future would mean that we wouldn't know what's best to do right now. Time would be wasted on things that are less important or less urgent. But a clear awareness of what is coming in the future clarifies the right response and supplies the motivation to act. And so in light of the amazing salvation that is ours in Jesus, live holy lives. Because God is going to graciously make us perfect, then make choices now that reject that which is displeasing to him. Seek to develop our love for him, shown in our love for one another. Let's pray, asking God to enable us to do just that. Lord God, we come before you and we recognise that uh, we are easily distracted by the present. It's so easy to just think about what's taking place now, what's taking place in the next few minutes, rather than to think about eternity, to think about what's been done for us, to redeem us, to perfect us. And we pray that you would enable us to uh, think of the future, this incredible hope that we have in Jesus, and that that would bring about practical changes in our lives, that we would seek to uh, have sin removed from our lives, that we would seek to love you 
that we would seek to demonstrate that love in how we love one another. We pray that you would bring about great changes in our thinking that would lead to great changes in our action. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.